Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody comes back, don't they? Isn't that so? A terribly strange bed by Wilkie Collins. Shortly after my education at college was finished, I happened to be staying at Paris with an English friend. We were both young men then, and lived, I am afraid, rather a wild life, in the delightful city of our sojourn. One night we were idling about the neighbourhood of the Palais Royal, doubtful to what amusement we should next betake ourselves. My friend proposed a visit to Frascati's, but his suggestion was not to my taste. I knew Frascati's, as the French saying is, by heart, had lost and won plenty of five-franc pieces there, merely for amusement's sake, until it was amusement no longer, and was thoroughly tired, in fact, of all the ghastly respectabilities of such a social anomaly as a respectable gambling house. For heaven's sake, said I to my friend, let us go somewhere where we can see a little genuine, blackguard, poverty-stricken gaming, with no false gingerbread glitter thrown over it all. Let us get away from fashionable frascatis to a house where they don't mind letting in a man with a ragged coat, or a man with no coat, ragged or otherwise. Very well, said my friend. We needn't go out of the Palais Royal to find the sort of company you want. Here's the place, just before us, as blackguard a place by all report as you could possibly wish to see. In another minute, we arrived at the door and entered the house. When we got upstairs and had left our hats and sticks with the doorkeeper, we were admitted into the chief gambling room. We did not find many people assembled there, but few as the men were who looked up at us on our entrance, they were all types, lamentably true types, of their respective classes. We had come to see blaggards, but these men were something worse. There is a comic side more or less appreciable in all blackguardism. Here there was nothing but tragedy. Mute, weird tragedy. The quiet in the room was horrible. The thin, haggard, long-haired young man whose sunken eyes fiercely watched the turning up of the cards never spoke. The flabby, fat-faced, pimply player who pricked his piece of pasteboard perseveringly to register how often black won and how often read, never spoke. The dirty, wrinkled old man with the vulture eyes and the darned greatcoat, who had lost his last sou and still looked on desperately after he could play no longer, never spoke. Even the voice of the croupier sounded as if it were strangely dulled and thickened in the atmosphere of the room. I had entered the place to laugh, but the spectacle before me was something to weep over. I soon found it necessary to take refuge in excitement from the depression of spirits which was fast stealing on me, and fortunately I sought the nearest excitement by going to the table, beginning to play. Still more unfortunately, as the event will show, I won. Won prodigiously, won incredibly one at such a rate that the regular players at the table crowded round me and, staring at my stakes with hungry, superstitious eyes, whispered to one another that the English stranger was going to break the bank. The game was rouge et noir. I had played it in every city in Europe without, however, the care or the wish to study the theory of chances, that philosopher's stone of all gamblers. 
and a gambler in the strict sense of the word, I had never been. I was heart whole from the corroding passion for play. My gaming was a mere idle amusement. I never resorted to it by necessity, because I never knew what it was to want money. I never practised it so incessantly as to lose more than I could afford, or gain more than I could coolly pocket without being thrown off my balance by my good luck. In short, I had hitherto frequented gambling tables, just as I frequented ballrooms and opera houses, because they amused me, and because I had nothing better to do with my leisure hours. But on this occasion, it was very different. Now, for the first time in my life, I felt what the passion for play really was. My success first bewildered, and then, in the most literal meaning of the word, intoxicated me. Incredible as it may appear, it is nevertheless true that I only lost when I attempted to estimate chances and played according to previous calculation. If I left everything to luck, and staked without any care or consideration, I was sure to win, to win in the face of every recognised probability in favour of the bank. At first, some of the men present ventured their money safely enough on my colour, but I speedily increased my stakes to sums which they dared not risk. One after another they left off playing, and breathlessly looked on at my game. Still, Time after time I staked higher and higher, and still won. The excitement in the room rose to fever pitch. The silence was interrupted by a deep-muttered chorus of oaths and exclamations in different languages. Every time the gold was shoveled across to my side of the table, even the imperturbable croupier dashed his rake on the floor in a French fury of astonishment at my success. But one man present preserved his self-possession, and that man was my friend. He came to my side, and whispering in English, begged me to leave the place, satisfied with what I had already gained. I must do him the justice to say that he repeated his warnings and entreaties several times, and only left me and went away after I had rejected his advice. I was, to all intents and purposes, gambling drunk, in terms which rendered it impossible for him to address me again that night. Shortly after he had gone, a hoarse voice behind me cried, Permit me, my dear sir, permit me to restore to their proper place two Napoleons which you have dropped. Wonderful luck, sir. I pledge you my word of honour as an old soldier. In the course of my long experience in this sort of thing, I never saw such luck as yours. Never. Go on, sir, Sacre-Milbon, go on boldly and break the bank. I turned round and saw, nodding and smiling at me with inveterate civility, a tall man, dressed in a frogged and baded surtout. If I had been in my senses, I should have considered him personally as being rather a suspicious specimen of an old soldier. He had goggling, bloodshot eyes, mangy moustaches and a broken nose. His voice betrayed a barrack-room intonation of the worst order, and he had the dirtiest pair of hands I ever saw, even in France. These little personal peculiarities exercised, however, no repelling influence on me. In the mad excitement, the reckless triumph of the moment, I was ready to fraternise with anybody who encouraged me in my game. 
I accepted the old soldier's offered pinch of snuff, clapped him on the back, and swore he was the honestest fellow in the world, the most glorious relic of the grand army that I had ever met with. Go on, cried my military friend, snapping his fingers in ecstasy. Go on and win. Break the bank, mille tonnerres, my gallant English comrade. Break the bank. And I did go on. Went on at such a rate that in another quarter of an hour the croupier called, Gentlemen, the bank has discontinued for tonight. All the notes and all the gold in that bank now lay in a heap under my hands. The whole floating capital of the gambling house was waiting to pour into my pockets. Tie up the money in your pocket handkerchief, my worthy sir, said the old soldier, as I wildly plunged my hands into my heap of gold. Tie it up as we used to tie up a bit of dinner in the Grande Armée. Your winnings are too heavy for any breeches pockets that were ever sold. There, that's it, shovel them in, notes and all. Credit, what luck! Stop! Another Napoleon on the floor. Ah, sacre petit polisson de Napoleon! Have I found thee at last? Now then, sir, two tight double knots each way with your honourable permission, and the money is safe. Feel it, feel it, fortunate sir. Hard and round as a cannonball. Ah, bah! If they had only fired such cannonballs at us at Austerlitz, nom d'une pipe, if they only had. And now, as an ancient grenadier, as an ex-brave of the French army, what remains for me to do? I ask what? Simply this, to entreat my valued English friend to drink a bottle of champagne with me and toast the goddess Fortune in foaming goblets before we part. Excellent ex-brave, convivial, ancient grenadier, champagne by all means, an English cheer for an old soldier, hurrah, hurrah, another English cheer for the goddess Fortune, hurrah, 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 bravo, the Englishman, the amiable, gracious Englishman, in whose veins circulates the vivacious blood of France. Another glass. Ah, bah, the bottle is empty. Never mind. Vive le vin. Aye. The old soldier order another bottle and half a pound of bonbon with it. No, no, ex-brave. Never, ancient grenadier. Your bottle last time. My bottle is. Behold it. Toast away. The French army. The great Napoleon. The present company, the croupier, the honest croupier's wife and daughters, if he has any, the ladies, generally, everybody in the world. By the time the second bottle of champagne was emptied, I felt as if I had been drinking liquid fire. My brain seemed all aflame. No excess in wine had ever had this effect on me before in my life. Was it the result of a stimulant acting upon my system when I was in such a highly excited state? Was my stomach in a particularly disordered condition? Or was the champagne amazingly strong? Ex-brave of the French army, cried I, in a mad state of exhilaration. I'm on fire. How are you? You have set me on fire. Do you hear, my hero of Austerlitz? Let us have a third bottle of champagne to put the flame out. The old soldier wagged his head rolled his goggle eyes until I expected to see them slip out of their sockets, placed his dirty forefinger 
by the side of his broken nose, solemnly ejaculated, Coffee! and immediately ran off into an inner room. The word pronounced by the eccentric veteran seemed to have a magical effect on the rest of the company present. With one accord they all rose to depart. Probably they had expected to profit by my intoxication, but finding that my new friend was benevolently bent on preventing me from getting dead drunk, had now abandoned all hope of thriving pleasantly on my winnings. Whatever their motive might be, at any rate, they went away in a body. When the old soldier returned and sat down again opposite to me at the table, we had the room to ourselves. I could see the croupier in a sort of vestibule which opened out of it, eating his supper in solitude. The silence was now deeper than ever. A sudden change, too, had come over the ex-brave. He assumed a portentously solemn look, and when he spoke to me again his speech was ornamented by no oaths, enforced by no finger-snapping, enlivened by no apostrophes or exclamations. Listen, my dear sir, said he, in mysteriously confidential tones, listen to an old soldier's advice. I have been to the mistress of the house, a very charming woman with a genius for cookery, to impress on her the necessity of making us some particularly strong and good coffee. You must drink this coffee in order to get rid of your little uh, amiable exaltation of spirits before you think of going home. You must, my good and gracious friend, with all that money to take home tonight, it is a sacred duty to yourself to have your wits about you. You are known to be a winner to an enormous extent by several gentlemen present tonight who, uh, in a certain point of view, are very worthy and excellent fellows, but they are mortal men, my dear sir, and they have their amiable weaknesses. Did I say more? Ah, no, no, you understand me. Now, this is what you must do. Send for a cabriolet when you feel quite well again. Draw up all the windows when you get in and tell the driver to take you home only through the large and well-lighted thoroughfares. Do this and you and your money will be safe. Do this and tomorrow you will thank an old soldier for giving you a word of honest advice. Just as the ex-brave ended his oration in very lachrymose tones, the coffee came in, ready poured into two cups. My attentive friend handed me one of the cups with a bow. I was parched with thirst and drank it off at a draught. Almost instantly afterwards, I was seized with a fit of giddiness and felt more completely intoxicated than before. The room whirled round and round furiously. The old soldier seemed to be regularly bobbing up and down before me like a piston of a steam engine. I was half deafened by a violent singing in my ears, a feeling of utter bewilderment, helplessness, idiocy overcame me. I rose from my chair, holding on by the table to keep my balance, and stammered out that I felt dreadfully unwell, so unwell that I did not know how I was to get home. My dear friend, answered the old soldier, and even his voice seemed to me bobbing up and down as he spoke. My dear friend, it would be madness to go home in your state. You would be sure to lose your money. You might be robbed and murdered with the greatest ease. I am going to sleep here. Do you sleep here too? They make up capital beds in this house. Take one, 
snip off the effects of the wine and go home safely with your winnings tomorrow. Tomorrow in broad daylight. I had but two ideas left. One, that I must never let go of my handkerchief full of money. The other, that I must lie down somewhere immediately and fall off into a comfortable sleep. So I agreed to the proposal about the bed and took the offered arm of the old soldier carrying my money with my disengaged hand. Preceded by the croupier, we passed along some passages and up a flight of stairs into the bedroom which I was to occupy. The ex-brave shook me warmly by the hand, proposed that we should breakfast together, and then, followed by the croupier, left me for the night. I ran to the washstand, drank some of the water in my jug, poured the rest out and plunged my face into it, then sat down in a chair and tried to compose myself. I soon felt better. The change from my lungs from the fetid atmosphere of the gambling room to the cool air of the apartment I now occupied, the almost equally refreshing change for my eyes, from the glaring gaslights of the salon to the dim, quiet flicker of one bedroom candle, aided wonderfully the restorative effects of cold water. The giddiness left me, and I began to feel a little like a reasonable being again. My first thought was of the risk of sleeping all night in a gambling house. My second, of the still greater risk of trying to get out after the house was closed, and of going home alone at night through the streets of Paris with a large sum of money about me. I had slept in worse places than this on my travels, so I determined to lock, bolt, and barricade my door, and take my chance till the next morning. Accordingly, I secured myself against all intrusion, looked under the bed and into the cupboard, tried the fastening of the window, and then, satisfied that I had taken every proper precaution, pulled off my upper clothing, put my light, which was a dim one, on the hearth among a feathery litter of wood ashes, and got into bed, with the handkerchief full of money, under my pillow. I soon felt not only that I could not go to sleep, but that I could not even close my eyes. I was wide awake, and in a high fever. Every nerve in my body trembled. Every one of my senses seemed to be preternaturally sharpened. I tossed and rolled, and tried every kind of position, and perseveringly sought out the cold corners of the bed, and all to no purpose. Now I thrust my arms over the clothes, now I poked them under the clothes. Now I violently shot my legs straight out down to the bottom of the bed, now I convulsively coiled them up as near my chin as they would go. Now I shook out my crumpled pillow, changed it round to the cool side, patted it flat, and lay down quietly on my back. Now I fiercely doubled it in two, set it up on end, thrust it against the board of the bed, and tried a sitting posture. Every effort was in vain. I groaned with vexation as I felt that I was in for a sleepless night. What could I do? I had no book to read. And yet, unless I found out some method of diverting my mind, I felt certain that I was in the condition to imagine all sorts of horrors, to rack my brain with forebodings of every possible and impossible danger. In short, to pass the night in suffering all conceivable varieties of nervous terror. I raised myself on my elbow and looked about the room. 
which was brightened by a lovely moonlight pouring straight through the window, to see if it contained any pictures or ornaments that I could at all clearly distinguish. While my eyes wandered from wall to wall, a remembrance of La Maester's delightful little book, Voyage autour de ma chambre, occurred to me. I resolved to imitate the French author and find occupation and amusement enough to relieve the tedium of my wakefulness by making a mental inventory of every article of furniture I could see and by following up to their sources the multitude of associations which even a chair, a table or a wash-handstand may be made to call forth. In the nervous, unsettled state of my mind at that moment, I found it much easier to make my inventory than to make my reflections, and thereupon soon gave up all hope of thinking in La Maestra's fanciful track, or indeed of thinking at all. I looked about the room at the different articles of furniture and did nothing more. There was first the bed I was lying in, a four-post bed of all things in the world to meet with in Paris, yes, a thoroughly clumsy British four-poster with the regular top lined with chintz, the regular fringed valance all around, the regular stifling, unwholesome curtains which I remembered having mechanically drawn back against the posts without particularly noticing the bed when I first got into the room. Then there was the marble-topped wash-handstand, from which the water I had spilled, in my hurry to pour it out, was still dripping slowly and more slowly onto the brick floor. Then two small chairs with my coat, waistcoat and trousers flung on them. Then a large elbow chair covered with dirty white dimity, with my cravat and shirt collar thrown over the back. Then a chest of drawers with two of the brass handles off had a tawdry, broken china inkstand placed on it by way of ornament for the top. Then the dressing-table, adorned by a very small looking-glass and a very large pincushion. Then the window, an unusually large window. Then a dark old picture, which the feeble candle dimly showed me. It was a picture of a fellow in a high Spanish hat, crowned with a plume of towering feathers, a swarthy, sinister ruffian, looking upward, shading his eyes with his hand, and looking intently upward. It might be at some tall gallows at which he was going to be hanged. At any rate, he had the appearance of thoroughly deserving it. This picture put a kind of constraint upon me to look upward too, at the top of the bed. It was a gloomy and not an interesting object, and I looked back at the picture. I counted the feathers in the man's hat. They stood out in relief, three white, two green. I observed the crown of his hat, which was of conical shape, according to the fashion supposed to have been favoured by Guido Fawkes. I wondered what he was looking up at. It couldn't be at the stars. Such a desperado was neither astrologer nor astronomer. It must be at the high gallows, and he was going to be hanged presently. Would the executioner come into possession of his conical-crowned hat and plume of feathers? I counted the feathers again. Three white, two green. While I still lingered over this very improving and intellectual employment, my thoughts insensibly began to wander. The moonlight shining into the room reminded me of a certain moonlight night in England, the night after a picnic party in a Welsh valley. Every incident of the drive homeward 
through lovely scenery, which the moonlight made lovelier than ever, came back to my remembrance, though I had never given the picnic a thought for years, though if I had tried to recollect it, I could certainly have recalled little or nothing of that scene long past. Of all the wonderful faculties that help to tell us we are immortal, which speaks the sublime truth more eloquently than memory, here was I, in a strange house of the most suspicious character, in a situation of uncertainty and even of peril, which might seem to make the cool exercise of my recollection almost out of the question. Nevertheless, remembering quite involuntarily places, people, conversations, minute circumstances of every kind, which I had thought forgotten for ever, which I could not possibly have recalled at will, even under the most favourable auspices. And what cause had produced in a moment the whole of this strange, complicated, mysterious effect? Nothing but some rays of moonlight shining in at my bedroom window. I was still thinking of the picnic, of our merriment on the drive home, of the sentimental young lady who would quote Child Harold because it was moonlight. I was absorbed by these past scenes and past amusements when, in an instant, the thread on which my memories hung snapped asunder. My attention immediately came back to present things more vividly than ever, and I found myself, I neither knew why nor wherefore, looking hard at the picture again. Looking? For what? Good God, the man had pulled his hat down on his brow. No, the hat itself was gone. Where was the conical crown? Where the feathers? Three white, two green. Not there. In place of the hat and feathers, what dusky object was it that now hid his forehead, his eyes, his shading hand? Was the bed moving? I turned on my back and looked up. Was I mad, drunk, dreaming, giddy again? Or was the top of the bed really moving down, sinking slowly, regularly, silently, horribly, right down throughout the whole of its length and breadth, right down upon me as I lay underneath? My blood seemed to stand still. A deadly, paralyzing coldness stole all over me as I turned my head round on the pillow and determined to test whether the bed-top was really moving or not by keeping my eye on the man in the picture. The next look in that direction was enough. The dull, black, frowsy outline of the valance above me was within an inch of being parallel with his waist. I still looked breathlessly, and steadily and slowly, very slowly, I saw the figure and the line of frame below the figure vanish as the valance moved down before it. I am constitutionally anything but timid. I have been on more than one occasion in peril of my life and have not lost my self-possession for an instant. But when the conviction first settled on my mind that the bed-top was really moving, was steadily and continuously sinking down upon me, I looked up, shuddering, helpless, panic-stricken beneath the hideous machinery for murder which was advancing closer and closer to suffocate me where I lay. I looked up, motionless, speechless, breathless. The candle, fully spent, went out, but the moonlight still brightened the room, 
Down and down, without pausing and without sounding, came the bed-top, and still my panic terror seemed to bind me faster and faster to the mattress on which I lay. Down and down it sank, till the dusty odour from the lining of the canopy came stealing into my nostrils. At that final moment the instinct of self-preservation startled me out of my trance, and I moved at last. There was just room for me to roll myself sideways off the bed. As I dropped noiselessly to the floor, the edge of the murderous canopy touched me on the shoulder. Without stopping to draw breath, without wiping the cold sweat from my face, I rose instantly on my knees to watch the bedtop. I was literally spellbound by it. If I had heard footsteps behind me, I could not have turned round. If a means of escape had been miraculously provided for me, I could not have moved to take advantage of it. The whole life in me was at that moment concentrated in my eyes. It descended. The whole canopy with the fringe round it came down, down, close down, so close that there was not room now to squeeze my finger between the bed top and the bed. I felt at the sides and discovered that what had appeared to me from beneath to be the ordinary light canopy of a four-post bed was in reality a thick, broad mattress, the substance of which was concealed by the valance and its fringe. I looked up and saw the four posts rising hideously bare. In the middle of the bed-top was a huge wooden screw that had evidently worked it down through a hole in the ceiling, just as ordinary presses are worked down on the substance selected for compression. The frightful apparatus moved without making the faintest noise. There had been no creaking as it came down. There was now not the faintest sound from the room above. Amid a dead and awful silence, I beheld before me, in the nineteenth century and in the civilised capital of France, such a machine for secret murder by suffocation as might have existed in the worst days of the Inquisition, in the lonely inns among the Hartz Mountains, in the mysterious tribunals of Westphalia. Still, as I looked on it, I could not move, I could hardly breathe, but I began to recover the power of thinking, and in a moment I discovered the murderous conspiracy framed against me in all its horror. My cup of coffee had been drugged, and drugged too strongly. I had been saved from being smothered by having taken an overdose of some narcotic. How I had chafed and fretted at the fever fit which had preserved my life by keeping me awake. How recklessly I had confided myself to the two wretches who had led me into this room, determined for the sake of my winnings to kill me in my sleep by the surest and most horrible contrivance for secretly accomplishing my destruction. How many men, winners like me, had slept as I had proposed to sleep in that bed, and had never been seen or heard of more. I shuddered at the bare idea of it. But ere long all thought was again suspended by the sight of the murderous canopy moving once more. After it had remained on the bed as nearly as I could guess about ten minutes, it began to move up again. The villains who worked it from above evidently believed that their purpose was now accomplished. Slowly and silently, as it had descended, that horrible bed-top rose towards its former place. 
When it reached the upper extremities of the four posts, it reached the ceiling too. Neither hole nor screw could be seen. The bed became in appearance an ordinary bed again, the canopy an ordinary canopy, even to the most suspicious eyes. Now, for the first time, I was able to move, to rise from my knees, to dress myself in my upper clothing, and to consider of how I should escape. If I betrayed by the smallest noise that the attempt to suffocate me had failed, I was certain to be murdered. Had I made any noise already? I listened intently, looking towards the door. No, no footsteps in the passage outside, no sound of a tread, light or heavy, in the room above. Absolute silence everywhere. Besides locking and bolting my door, I had moved an old wooden chest against it, which I had found under the bed. To remove this chest, my blood ran cold as I thought of what its contents might be. Without making some disturbance was impossible, and moreover to think of escaping through the house, now barred up for the night, was sheer insanity. Only one chance was left me, the window. I stole to it on tiptoe. My bedroom was on the first floor above an entresol, and looked into a back street. I raised my hand to open the window, knowing that on that action hung by the merest hairbreadth my chance of safety. They keep vigilant watch in a house of murder. If any part of the frame cracked, if the hinge creaked, I was a lost man. It must have occupied me at least five minutes reckoning by time, five hours reckoning by suspense, to open that window. I succeeded in doing it silently, in doing it with all the dexterity of a housebreaker, and then looked down into the street. To leap the distance beneath me would be almost certain destruction. Next, I looked around at the sides of the house. Down the left side ran a thick water pipe. It passed close by the outer edge of the window. The moment I saw the pipe, I knew I was saved. My breath came and went freely for the first time since I had seen the canopy of the bed moving down upon me. To some men the means of escape which I had discovered might have seemed difficult and dangerous enough. To me the prospect of slipping down the pipe into the street did not suggest even a thought of peril. I had always been accustomed, by the practice of gymnastics, to keep up my schoolboy powers as a daring and expert climber, and I knew that my head, hands and feet would serve me faithfully in any hazards of ascent or descent. I had already got one leg over the windowsill when I remembered the handkerchief filled with money under my pillow. I could well have afforded to leave it behind me, but I was revengefully determined that the miscreants of the gambling house should miss their plunder as well as their victim. So I went back to the bed and tied the heavy handkerchief at my back by my cravat. Just as I had made it tight and fixed in a comfortable place, I thought I heard the sound of breathing outside the door. The chill feeling of horror ran through me again as I listened. No, dead silence still in the passage. I had only heard the night air blowing softly into the room. The next moment I was on the windowsill, and the next I had a firm grip on the water pipe with my hands and knees. I slid down to the street easily and quietly, as I thought I should, and immediately set off at the top of my speed to a branch prefecture of police 
which I knew was situated in the immediate neighbourhood. A sub-prefect and several picked men among his subordinates happened to be up, maturing, I believe, some scheme for discovering the perpetrator of a mysterious murder which all Paris was talking of just then. When I began my story, in a breathless hurry, and in very bad French, I could see that the sub-prefect suspected me of being a drunken Englishman who had robbed somebody, but soon altered his opinion as I went on, and before I had anything like concluded, he shoved all the papers before him into a drawer, put on his hat, supplied me with another, for I was bareheaded, ordered a file of soldiers, desired his expert followers to get ready, all sorts of tools for breaking open doors and ripping up brick flooring, and took my arm in the most friendly and familiar manner possible to lead me with him out of the house. I will venture to say that when the sub-prefect was a little boy and was taken for the first time to the play, he was not half as much pleased as he was now at the job in prospect for him at the gambling house. Away we went through the streets, sub-prefect cross-examining and congratulating me in the same breath as we marched at the head of our formidable posse comitatus. Sentinels were placed at the back and front of the house the moment we got to it. A tremendous battery of knocks was directed against the door. A light appeared at a window. I was told to conceal myself behind the police. Then came more knocks and a cry of, Open in the name of the law! At that terrible summons, bolts and locks gave way before an invisible hand, and the moment after the sub-prefect was in the passage, confronting a waiter half-dressed and ghastly pale. This was the short dialogue which immediately took place. We want to see the Englishman who is sleeping in this house. He went away hours ago. He did no such thing. His friend went away. He remained. Show us to his bedroom. I swear to you, monsieur le sous-préfet, he is not here. I swear to you, monsieur le garçon, he is. He slept here. He didn't find your bed comfortable. He came to us to complain of it. He is among my men, and here I am, ready to look for a flea or two in his bedstead. Renaudin, calling to one of the subordinates and pointing to the waiter, collar that man and tie his hands behind him. Now then, gentlemen, let us walk upstairs. Every man and woman in the house was secured, the old soldier the first. Then I identified the bed in which I had slept, and we went into the room above. No object that was at all extraordinary appeared in any part of it. The sub-prefect looked round the place, commanded everybody to be silent, stamped twice on the floor, called for a candle, looked attentively at the spot he had stamped on, and ordered the flooring there to be carefully taken up. This was done in no time. Lights were produced, and we saw a deep rafted cavity between the floor of this room and the ceiling of the room beneath. Through this cavity there ran perpendicularly a sort of case of iron, thickly greased, and inside the case appeared the screw, which communicated with the bed-top below. Extra lengths of screw, freshly oiled, levers covered with felt, all the complete upper works of a heavy press, constructed with infernal ingenuity so as to join the fixtures below, and, when taken to pieces again to go into the smallest possible compass, were next discovered and pulled out on the floor. After some little difficulty, the sub-prefect succeeded in putting the machinery together, and, leaving his men to work it, descended with me to the bedroom. 
The smothering canopy was then lowered, but not so noiselessly as I had seen it lowered. When I mentioned this to the sub-prefect, his answer, simple as it was, had a terrible significance. My men, said he, are working down the bedtop for the first time. The men whose money you won were in better practice. We left the house in the sole possession of two police agents, every one of the inmates being removed to prison on the spot. The sub-prefect, after taking down my process verbal in his office, returned with me to my hotel to get my passport. Do you think, I asked as I gave it to him, that any men have really been smothered in that bed as they tried to smother me? I have seen dozens of drowned men laid out at the morgue, answered the sub-prefect, in whose pocket-books were found letters stating that they had committed suicide in the Seine because they had lost everything at the gaming-table. Do I know how many of those men entered the same gambling-house that you entered? One, as you won, took that bed as you took it, slept in it, were smothered in it, and were privately thrown into the river with a letter of explanation written by the murderers and placed in their pocket-books. No man can say how many or how few have suffered the fate from which you have escaped. The people of the gambling-house kept their bedstead machinery a secret from us, even from the police. The dead kept the rest of the secret for them. Good night, or rather good morning, Monsieur Faulkner. Be at my office again at nine o'clock. In the meantime, au revoir. The rest of my story is soon told. I was examined and re-examined. The gambling house was strictly searched all through from top to bottom. The prisoners were separately interrogated, and two of the less guilty among them made a confession. I discovered that the old soldier was master of the gambling house. Justice discovered that he had been drummed out of the army as a vagabond years ago, that he had been guilty of all sorts of villainies since that he was in possession of stolen property, which the owners identified, and that he, the croupier, another accomplice, and the woman who had made my cup of coffee, were all in the secret of the bedstead. There appears some reason to doubt whether the inferior persons attached to the house knew anything of the suffocating machinery, and they received the benefit of the doubt, being treated simply as thieves and vagabonds. As for the old soldier, and his two-head myrmidons, they went to the galleys. The woman who had drugged my coffee was imprisoned for I forget how many years. The regular intendants at the gambling house were considered suspicious and placed under surveillance, and I became, for one whole week, which is a long time, the head lion in Parisian society. My adventure was dramatised by three illustrious playmakers, but never saw theatrical daylight, for the censorship forbade the introduction on the stage of a correct copy of the gambling-house bedstead. One good result was produced by my adventure, which any censorship must have approved. It cured me of ever again trying Roger Noir as an amusement. The sight of a green cloth with packs of cards and heaps of money on it will henceforth be forever associated in my mind with the sight of a bed canopy descending to suffocate me in the silence and darkness of the night.
Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? So that was uh, A Terribly Strange Bed by Wilkie Collins. And I got it, uh, you may know, I was talking the other day about this big anthology, not that I haven't got plenty of anthologies of ghost stories, but it's called Ghost 100 Stories to Read with the lights on, uh, edited by Louise Welsh or selected by Louise Welsh. Nice cover to a big book. I like a big book. Now, of course, it isn't a ghost story, is it? So, you know, you could say that's a misnomer, but it is kind of like a horror story in that um, he's about to be squashed by a bed. And in that, it's similar to things like, you know, horror films like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Saw. I mean, there are lots of horror stories that don't have a supernatural element. They're just horrific. So I guess it's not a ghost story, but it is a horror story in a sense. Although it's tame by modern standards, by, you know, it would have shocked those Victorians. And we do have a history of doing these kind of Victorian adventures. We did. We've never done a Wilkie Collins before. But I did um, The Grey Woman, or The Grey Woman, by Elizabeth Gaskell, Mrs. Gaskell, um, which doesn't have a ghost in either. And it's more like this is kind of a gothic romance, really. And uh, that went down really well, so I thought I'd get away with Wilkie Collins. Wilkie, I'll tell you something about him. I'll tell you something about Wilkie himself. Wilkie Collins was born in 1824, died in 1889. He was a British novelist and playwright best known for his pioneering works in the genre of detective fiction. Born in London, England, he was the son of William Collins, a successful landscape painter, and his wife Harriet. Collins was educated at a private boarding school and then attended the Royal Academy of Arts, where he studied painting and drawing. Despite his early artistic ambitions, Collins eventually turned to writing and published his first novel, Antonina, Antonina, in 1850. This was followed by several other novels, including Basil, 1852, and Hide and Seek, 1854, which were all well received by critics and readers alike. However, it was his fourth novel, The Woman in White, 1860, that established Collins as a major figure in uh, Victorian literature. By my calculations, it would be 36 when that came out. The Woman in White is a sensation novel, you may know it, that tells the story of a young woman named Laura Farley who is pursued by a sinister figure named Sir Percival Glyde. The novel is notable for its complex plot, multiple characters and multiple narrators, and use of suspense and mystery, it was an instant success and has since become a classic of Victorian literature. He followed that up 1862 with a book called No Name, and then uh, Armadale 1866 and The Moonstone 1868, which is often considered the first true detective novel in English. I like The Moonstone and The Woman in White. I'm not sure I've read the others. Uh, in addition to his novels, Collins was uh, a, a prolific playwright and wrote several successful plays, including The Frozen Deep 1857 which was co-written with Charles Dickens. But he was a big pal of Charles Dickens, and I think they, they um, did a tour around uh, the UK, and uh, Wilkie Collins twisted his ankle, climbing Carrick Fell. Also stayed in Allenby, where I used to live in the pub, and the pub had a thing about it. Wilkie Collins and uh, Charles Dickens stayed here. Just the one night, but, they, you know, uh, I never stayed there, so I'm not sure they... <laughs> I don't think they put a, a plaque up for me anyway. So Wilkie Collins was known for his flamboyant lifestyle and had a reputation as a womanizer and a heavy drinker. Collins suffered from poor health in his later years. This is what happens if you're a womanizer and heavy drinker, and I certainly hope those don't catch up with me. Um, he died in 1818, that's a joke, by the way, at the age of 65. Despite his sometimes controversial personal life, he is widely regarded as one of the most important writers of the Victorian era, and his influence can be seen in the work of many later writers, including Arthur Conan Doyle, you can see that, 
Agatha Christie and T.S. Eliot. I guess they're talking about murder in the cathedral there. Because, you know, I can't see anything in his poetry. Terribly Strange Bed, this story, is a short story by Wilkie Collins that was first published in 1852. We know the story. Um, this little note I've got says how good it is. Um, hmm. Um, I, I was, I'm always very interested in, uh, in, in motifs in stories, you know, because there are only so many stories. I mean, uh, was it Christopher Brooker? Public, uh, it was a massive book he wrote, though. It was in 2004. I used to have a copy of it. Um, he says there's only seven plots, and Brooker looked at basically ar- archetypes, and he named the seven plots that there are. And these, for your interest, are Overcoming the Monster, one, Rags to Riches, The Quest, Voyage and Return, Comedy, Tragedy and Rebirth. And he said all stories fit within those sevens. And I guess he was motivated, he was very interested in Jungian thought, and same here, of course, looking at the archetypes that keep reappearing. Another way of looking at it is, and I've said this before, is the Arnie Thompson Stith, or anyway, it's uh, no Uta, and it's the ATU index of folk motifs. And this is, I've been talking about this quite a lot recently. So um, I, I asked uh, my friend Chat GTP, which I do a lot of research on now, I said, uh, what are the Arne Thompson Uter folk tale index motifs? And it says, this is quite interesting, in a terribly strange bed, we've got ATU 967, you know, they're all numbered. The dangerous game motif, the protagonist of the story, a gambler who's playing a dangerous game with high stakes. This is true. This motif is common in many folk tales where characters play games of chance with potentially dire consequences. Yeah. The clever servant motif, ATU 1535. The narrator of the story relies on his wits and cunning to outsmart his opponents. Yeah. Okay. Clever servant. Okay. Maybe, maybe. The trapped hero motif, ATU 302. The narrator of the story is trapped in a bed that is designed to trap and suffocate its occupants, as we know. This motif is common in many folk tales where heroes or protagonists are trapped in dangerous situations from which they must escape. The secret passage motif. The narrator discovers a secret passage that leads to safety. That isn't true. Uh, The betrayal motif. The gambling house owners betray the narrator by luring him into a trap and attempting to kill him. That is fairly true. Then, of course, because I was on a roll, I then asked ChatGPT. You probably hate ChatGPT, but I'm very interested in it at the moment. And I say, um, can you suggest parallels between A Terribly Strange Bed, the story we've just read, and Scooby-Doo, because they jumped out at me? It, would have, it was like, uh, you know, I think the issue is um, there is no supernatural element, although it appears quite... I don't even think he thinks it's supernatural, really. So fair enough. But ChatGPT gave me four points of similarity both feature a group of characters who are investigating a mystery. In Scooby-Doo, the gang is always trying to solve a mystery or catch a villain, while in a terribly strange bed, the narrator finds himself in dangerous situation. Okay. Both involve a trap or a scheme. In a terribly strange bed, the narrator realises too late that he has fallen into a trap, while in Scooby-Doo, the villains often create elaborate schemes to try and catch the gang. I mean, it's true as far as it goes. Both have unexpected twists in both A Terribly Strange Bed and Scooby-Doo. There are often unexpected twists or reveals that change the direction of the story or reveal the true identity of the villain. Both are suspenseful and entertaining. Finally, both A Terribly Strange Bed and Scooby-Doo are highly entertaining works that keep the reader or viewer engaged and on the edge of their... This is what's called um, special pleading. I've noticed if you ask uh, ChatGPT if it can do something, it always says it can certainly and it 
then sometimes either A makes things up or creates, in this case, pretty tenuous comparisons. Um, one, one interesting, I then went to ask you that, one interesting thing is, you know, it struck me that, um, like the Moonstone, like a woman in, the woman in white, like this one, sometimes they have supernatural elements. We just said this one doesn't, but... And it turns out there is no ghost. That is, that is the Scooby-Doo thing, because Scooby-Doo, it never turns out to be the ghost. And, um, and ChatGPT says, yeah. It says, Collins was known for his use of mystery and suspense. It didn't say, yeah. Uh, it said, yes. It is generally true that Wilkie Collins' supernatural stories tend to have a rational, everyday explanation. Collins was known for his use of mystery and suspense in his writing and often used supernatural elements to create a sense of unease and intrigue. However, he was also a firm believer in rationalism and the scientific method, and he believed that there was always a logical explanation. So this kind of explains that this is what his belief was. The Dream Woman, for example, supernatural story, the protagonist is haunted by a mysterious woman in his dreams. However, it is eventually... I hope this isn't a spoiler... However, well, it is, but, you know, you may not be planning to read The Dream Woman. Uh, and if you are planning, just give it a little while till you've forgotten. However, it is eventually revealed that the woman is a real person who is trying to kill him in order to inherit his fortune. Similarly, in The Haunted Hotel, which is often considered one of Collins's best supernatural stories, the supposed haunting, spoiler alert, is eventually revealed to be a fraud perpetrated by the hotel's owner. Collins' use of rational explanations was part of a larger trend in Victorian literature, this is actually quite interesting, which sought to reconcile the growing scientific and rationalist worldview with the traditional beliefs in the supernatural and the spiritual. By providing rational explanations for the apparently supernatural events, Collins was able to create stories that were both suspenseful and thought-provoking, while also reflecting the changing cultural attitudes of his time. That's true. And then it talks about the dream woman... A woman in white, as you remember, um, although Anne Catherick, who is the woman in white, is often mistaken for a ghost or supernatural being due to her strange appearance and mysterious behaviour. There's a bloke down our street who has a strange appearance and mysterious behaviour, but I've never thought he was a ghost, although he does keep me awake by shouting. However, her true identity and motives are gradually revealed over the course of the novel. She's a real woman. Uh, and anyway, that's what I was saying about, you know, the grey woman, Elizabeth Gaskell, that isn't... Um, supernatural so this this isn't technically a ghost story but uh i know people like bite-sized audio and sherlock holmes have massive audiences doing stuff reading stuff like this so um i thought well give it a shot really um other news well the puppies are getting bigger there are eight of them and liam has sold six including as it turned out one to us i didn't know that so um sheila brought i knew she she asked me a couple of times if i wanted a puppy and i was like no 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 no. i i love them to bits i love them love them but um ah oh, you know it's so tying etc etc this is my arguments against but it turns out we're going to get a puppy and we're going to get um a sleepy gray i want to call her connie uh, Sheila wants to call her Ruby. I say, she's not red. She says, what colour is she then? I said, well, she's green. And she says, she's not green. Dogs are not green. And I said, are they not? Because I'm colourblind. And I'd always thought, I mean, she's a kind of grey colour, which to me, a lot of things that people who aren't colourblind, I think they're just kind of messing with me because they say like blue and purple are two different colours when they're obviously the same colour and yellow and orange and things like that. Uh, and um, they say they're different, but I say, 
yeah, whatever. So obviously this is a grey green, but still green to me. And then she says, no, it's grey. That's So she is a sleepy grey and she sleeps and she's a bit timid and she doesn't push her way forward and get the milk and the food. So I've got this thing about looking after people. So, oh, yeah, let's have her. And then there's two others. One is Spothead, who I'm not sure these will be their ongoing names. But um, Spothead, um, he woofed at me. He was the one who woofed at me. And I, I put my face, he came right in direction and went, woof, woof, in his little puppy woof, because it wasn't a proper woof. And then um, I like him. He cried, and it was for a cuddle. And then you picked him up, and he was shivering, because he wasn't used to um, humans. And then after a bit, he kind of calms down and thinks, oh, I quite like that, and he fell asleep on me. And then the other one is Sawfoot. <laughs> you may guess why he's called Sawfoot. He's got a sore foot, although I think it's getting better. He just looks bewildered. Um, and he's, uh, Liam's got a picture of him holding him up, and he's, his face is like, what's going on? I don't know what's going on. And so um, he hasn't sold those two, and I'm like, oh, he can't. Oh, well, maybe we're going to have two dogs. And then when Shade comes around, and Liam's keeper wants, and that's four dogs. And he's and he's his half brother Ed's living with him, and he's having one, so that's another dog. So if we, so we'd have five dogs in the house, which is she won't let me have a cat though. Yeah, I'd like a cat. She says they ruin your furniture, which of course they do. But um, I've had some, I've had lovely cats and dogs to be honest. So you know, bear that in mind. If there's ever a story where a poor creature is harmed, it's not it's not me doing it. You know, um, oh, that's an old one, isn't it? The other thing. So, I mean, oh, what about, I went for a walk with my daughter today, and she's a teacher, and it's awful. You know, they work, they work long days, six, I mean, she ends up working six days a week, ten hours, and um, it's all regulated by the government, you know. The government, for all they say, they want to be small government. They, they you know, I work for the health service, so they micromanage everything, and everything is prescribed, you must do this, and we end up doing things that are ridiculous and pointless but anyway so we're both sick of it and it's a shame because she's only 26 she's gonna be 27 this year um and she was on fire for teaching and they've kind of knocked it out of her and i honestly if somebody said to me now with the state of things as they are do you I, i've been very interested in being a psychiatric nurse it's been a very uh, you know i suppose rewarding career for me really for the past 20 years or so and um that's a thought isn't it 20 years few. Uh, and um, but I'm not sure I would recommend it to somebody now. It's just too awful. I mean, you know, when we used to see a patient back in the day when I was in the crisis team, you'd see somebody, you'd see them for an hour, and then you'd write it up. And you'd have, they've got so much paperwork. It takes them about two hours to fill in all the forms and things. And and they produce these 11-page risk assessments that nobody reads. They send them to me now in my new job. I'm like, I don't want to read this. I'll just skip to the end where it says what I've got to do. Um, you know what is requested of me anyway. I've sort of, I wasn't going to say that, but uh, um, anyway, we went for a walk. What was I going to say? Off to Manchester tomorrow. It's my birthday tomorrow, and we're going to see a guy called Nick Mulvey, who we've seen a couple of times, and well, but probably more than a couple of times. And um, last time I had a couple of drinks and I spoke to him. This was years ago in Kendall, and he um, he came up to. I knew all the words, and he came up and shook my hand, and I thought, oh, I'm just too drunk. I wasn't drunk, drunk, but I'd had a couple of pints and I was um, a few, too effusive, I think. I'd like to be reserved and English, but uh, I was too um, enthusiastic. We don't like that, really. Um, no, s- stiff up a lip and all that. 
So we're going to see him tomorrow. We're going to an Indian restaurant called Dishoom, which I've been to before. The one in Manchester is the best. I think it's an old, uh, an old Masonic lodge. But I think it was something like it was a Masonic lodge for people of colour. Um, and so it, it is, it's just a special one. So it's and there's pictures of all the old um, members around the world. It's a really fantastic place. If you ever get and the food's wowza. If you ever get there. So that's that's it really. Puppies, daughters, the state of the world, Indian food, good. Um, the the um, trees are coming into blossom against the leaden, grey English skies. All these trees bravely come into the blossom in the drizzle and the grey. But um, <laughs> other than that, everything's fine. So, okay, uh, yeah, hope you like that. Can't beat a bit of Wilkie, can you? I've never done it before, so I thought I'd uh, give it a shot. Oh, yeah, I remember what I was going to say. I did a poll because, you know, I got into the habit of, uh, and it went down well, was doing long compilations of stories. So these would be go up to 11, 12 hours, and you put them up, and I, they're for people to sleep to. So I put rain noise against them because I'd seen other channels do this, and it gone down pretty well. And to be honest, uh, some people really like it. So you, sometimes the rain is too loud to hear the story, but the point is you're supposed to be sleeping or dozing. So you're not supposed to be listening to the story. If you want to listen to the stories, I've got other versions that don't have any rain noise that are intended for you not to fall asleep to. But trying telling people what to do is very difficult because you go, look, this one's for you to fall asleep to, this one's not. And they, and they fall asleep to the ones they're not supposed to, and they listen to the ones that have got the rain noise on. Anyway, so I did a poll because it was complaints. And um, uh, it turned out that 64% like the rain noise and 34% don't. But there's nothing to stop me doing the occasional compilation that has no rain noise. So it'll just be... And people like it. You know, they like um, no noise and black screen and they don't like um, the, uh, the theme music. So at the end of it, so they don't want the theme music, they don't want the pictures, they don't want the rain noise. Just want, well, just switch it off. And just lie in the quiet. Oh, no, I'm being, oh, it's showing my bitterness there. Um, you know, yeah, do, do what you want. It's up to you, it's your ears. Uh, so I might, do, I might do a black screen, no rain noise, no signature, but you're going to get ads, right? Okay. So with, uh, let me say something about that. So, so um, I get paid, unless you are a member, then I get paid from you listening to ads. You, if you don't listen to ads, I don't get paid. So I could do a 12-hour piece. If there's no ads in it, I get nothing for that. But I recognize that having ads throughout the stories is really uh, jarring, and you're trying to sleep after all. So I only put them at the beginning and the end. So in 12 hours, I mean, somebody else might do that and put like one zillion ads in. And, and, but the, what I think would happen would be people just wouldn't listen to it. So, you know, it's self-defeating. So, you know, I'm not being totally uh, charitable there. But there has to be some ads. So if I take the end noise out, uh, you're going to hear the ads unless you, are, uh, unless you have YouTube Premium, in which case you won't. So these are the things that keep me awake at night. Never mind beds coming down on you. These are the things I worry about. And my neighbor shouting, of course. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they?
Isn't that so?